Okay, good morning. Today is another day, so it seems. Um, Thursday, October 14, class 19, reading the biography of Nisargadat Maharaj from G.K. Damodaro Rao. Uh, close to the end of the biography of Nisargadat's life and a little bit of his teaching. And then we will go back to the long section at the bottom of the page, innerquest.org, on uh, his teaching. Uh, very um, useful Advaita Vedanta philosophy from his experience. So he's not a scholar, he's a practitioner or a realized being. And is either finished with the path or pretty close to finish with the path, as far as I can tell. And some of the things that I'll read today when we get into back to the uh, 200 teaching quotes um, are ideas that I'm not quite sure what he means because I haven't experienced some of those things. Uh, and you can see his view. Interestingly, <laughs> there was a, a Nisarga, Nisarga, Nisarga means natural or nature. There was a typhoon or a cyclone that hit through Maharashtra, his zone, that was also called Nisarg or Nisarga. That was very destructive <laughs> uh, in the 80s or something, or, or recently, uh, maybe, uh, maybe just recently, actually. So mm, trying to look at the etymology or meaning of the name Nisarg, Nisarga, it does mean natural. There was a, a local cyclone recently uh, that was quite natural but destructive. Uh, he's naturally himself, uh, but no longer worried about freedom from illusions of self, and no longer worried about working with so-called ego. Uh, self-realization goes to realization of uh, satchit, or uh, satchit being uh, being. You'll see him make a reference to satchit ananda in one of the quotes today. Uh, being, awareness, bliss, ananda bliss, sat as absolute reality or truth, uh, or being, but it's really the being of absolute reality with no separative, um, pr no separative identity. Uh, in fact, the whole issue of identity falls away. One, the one seeking freedom uh, goes beyond identity to become reality to become a stream in reality. But the identity, the identity of a current in the ocean, is it a current or is it the ocean? Well, it's a current in the ocean. It's the ocean uh, that manifests a current. But if the current in the ocean knows I am the ocean, tatvamasi, right? I is such, I am that, I is such, really. Tat, meaning tatsat, tat. And so such, uh, is I. Such is I. Um, that's not an identity. <laughs> that's uh, satchit, awareness of being, but it's really awareness of absolute reality. It can be called being, but the issue of uh, reality, the issue of being, non-being is finished. All dualism is finished because, and time and space is finished. And uh, meaning the experience of any uh, polarity uh, is done and uh, he very much um, manifests his own unique um, reality his, his own unique um, aspect of speaking reality his own unique path to reality and a, a completely natural, authentic expression. Ooh. <laughs> Some kind of uh, announcement to the community out here. That's the music in the background. <laughs> um, his, um, you know, we have to use dualistic terms. His own path, authentic authenticity, the authenticity of his own unique path, fearlessly, um, using words, dropping words, using terms of polarity and knowing they're empty, uh, 
you'll see you'll see more of that in these in some of the final passages of his biography here from G.K. Damodara Rao. So let's jump in. Now we're in the second to last section called The Last Days. After that is the final section of the bio called The Last Moments. Then we go to the wisdom quotes. Towards the end of this section, The Last Days, <clears throat> first he spoke about the beady, sell- the beady buyers. And that's where we ended last time. And I'll just repeat that because it's kind of touching and sensitive. He was a very caring person (laughs) and never um, distanced himself uh, from ordinary ordinary folks, you know, because he uh, was in love. So he, G.K. Damodaro Rao, towards the end of the last uh, days, says, wrote, I must mention here of the sorrow of the poor crowd of beady buyers. They found that Maharaj was critically ill. Again, this is the end of uh, 1981. And they could not gain entry into his apartment, even to stand from a distance and have their last darshan. In their innocent way, from rumors afloat outside the house, they thought that Maharaj was dying and will not be seen any more by them. They could not reconcile themselves to the finality of death and the impermanence of the body. They grew to love Maharaj by their association with him for many, many days in the morning over the purchase of beadies and the half-hour talk given by Maharaj, which is something he did regularly for them. Emotionally, they found themselves very unable to contain their feelings of separation from Maharaj. It's funny how he puts it like they felt that because... <laughs> Every single devotee and disciple had the same feeling of grief at his passing. It makes it sound like these poor, innocent, you know, dumb, common folk, beady buyers, you know, they were the ones that couldn't handle his passing. Every single one of the devotees was super upset. <laughs> Every single one of those who listened to him didn't want him to go and felt grief. So don't give me a break. So, so this guy has a little bit of a chin up. So, he goes on, on one day, Maharaj was informed that his old customers, most of them poor old people of the locality in Bombay, were anxious to have a glimpse of him and that they were not allowed inside by the people guarding the entrance, restricting the admission, not to disturb Maharaj, who needed a lot of rest, and to prevent him from having an emotional outburst. (laughs) Always the uh, circle around a great one... um, has the arrogance of a head waiter. <laughs> On seeing his dear and poor customers, Maharaj, with his instinctive compassion, allowed them to climb up to the loft room in small batches to have a glimpse of him and then go down. Maharaj consoled them, saying that he was not going anywhere, he was not going away anywhere, and that he'll be with them, and that he'll be soon selling them beadies. On the astral, perhaps. Maharaj's love for them became a legend, and they were the, f- the first callers on Maharaj. And here's the new paragraph ending the section. One day, when the number of visitors was small, Maharaj was inclined to talk to the assembled crowd on the problem of suffering, dukkha, when someone asked him why one has to suffer, and waited for Maharaj's answers. After closing his eyes for a few moments, he softly answered the question, Though his reserve energy was low, and though the doctors had told him that he's suffering from the vile disease of cancer, he was not perturbed at all. The very mention of the disease cancer would normally put a patient into a state of shock, but Maharaj asserted most emphatically, though in a feeble voice, that his reaction was totally different. He asked the assembled crowd, Who is ill? and added that whatever was born should die in the appointed time, and the only thing that will survive will be the consciousness, which really is using the translating uh, probably chit for uh, consciousness. And I don't think he, you know, again, he used the word awareness to talk about non-subjective sentience, non-subjective consciousness. We can use, he used the word awareness, but he regularly either contradicted himself or used other, the other word consciousness for final awareness. 
uh, here, I think he means yes, indeed. What really survives is um, liberated awareness. <clears throat> In his enigmatic way, he said that, quote, his relative absence will be his absolute presence and that the moment of death will be the moment of highest ecstasy, bliss. During the last days, when the crowd was restricted, and only the relations and a few intimate friends were allowed to stay in the loft room under doctor's advice, Maharaj continued to talk, though in a low voice, half reclining in his bed with his eyes closed. The persons in constant attendance on Maharaj were Sri Mularpatan, who translated, and Sri Balsakar, who also translated and became a teacher, and a few family members. Maharaj suddenly opened his eyes and started to talk in a spirit of admonition. He told them, quote, You have been coming here of your own volition to see another individual, a guru, who you expect will give you liberation from bondage. Do you not see how ridiculous all this is? Your coming here day after day only shows that you are not prepared to accept my word that there is no such thing as an individual. He then added, Whatever I say is being tape-recorded by some people, and some others take down their own notes. For what purpose? On another occasion, Maharaj said, People have been coming here to me wanting knowledge. What is this knowledge that you want? This knowledge about which you take down notes. What use will be made of those notes? Have you given any thought to this aspect of the matter? Maharaj talked on other things also on that day, and one could see that he was visibly exhausted, and lay back down again on his bed, and with a wave of his hand asked them to go, adding with a light touch of humor that it was perhaps just as well that he could now only give out, quote, capsules of knowledge, end quote. So, uh, a little comment on these last two paragraphs that closes the um, section the last days. Uh, someone asked him, why do we have to suffer? He doesn't answer it. Actually, it's a question of cosmology and logoic intention. Why does the creator of light create light that, you know, in this situation uh, of uh, apparent beingnesses with apparent experience, apparently substantial, subjective in time and space, apparently experientially feeling suffering and dukkha and stress and dissatisfaction, why? 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 Why is that happening? Why is this the way creation is? Well, you know, um, in general, the fullest answer that I've seen comes from the raw material, not anyone else. <clears throat> Gautama didn't really address it much, and he clearly didn't either. Uh, Nisargadat basically asks, in, rather than explaining why we suffer why creation involves dissatisfaction and dukkha. He reframed, redirected the question to uh, another question in reply, who is ill? Meaning, you know, aham vichar, I inquiry, self-inquiry, I inquiry, uh, auto, autos inquiry. Later we're going to get to this uh, Greek etymology, the word autonomy, autonomy, from the root auto and nomos. Um, what's that all about? Uh, aham vichar, commonly translated as self-inquiry. Aham, aham, the root of the word ego, echo, actually, is I, <clears throat> which is, in the Greek, auto, self. But we'll look at that and find an interesting view of what the very subtle, very deep metaphysics of ahamkar, making aham, making ego, making an I. How is I made? Well, <clears throat> the reason they're suffering, uh, or there's dukkha in being's experience in this illusory dreamlike octave of dimensions, is very much associated with this creation of aham, the creation of an I, of a uh, transient, impermanent, insubstantial, yet uh, quite tangible experience of selfhood, subjectivity, separation, uh, localized agency, distinct from externals, 
a dualistics, the, the experience of dualism of subject-object. Subject-object equals subjectivity, subjectivism. When the subject arises, so too does the object. When uh, awareness coalesces into consciousness, we are born, what is born is a subjectivity. Beingness, a beingness is a subjectivity, is a localized point of agency, a localized point of awareness, consciousness, whatever your word, point of sentience. It's a coalescence of infinite awareness into finite identity, subjectivized, separative sense of self. Okay. He asks about, you know, uh, asks the questioner, who is the, uh, is the one that is experiencing suffering? He's saying there ain't no one here suffering. You may feel suffering, Dukkha, but actually the nature of this apparent subject <laughs> is uh, the heart of the suffering. Right. If there's no coalescence of infinite intelligence, intelligent infinity, into subjective, separative consciousness identity, there won't be dukkha. Right. There's no dukkha outside the octave. Mm. There was no dukkha before the octave. You know, before the octave, before the generation of light, before pranava, right? Pranavam. The Om transmission of the Logoi, let there be light, generating octaves, i.e. seven rays, i.e. seven dimensions, multiple schemas of seven dimensions. Before that, letting there be light, there was the one infinite, not in Dukkha, and not needing liberation. That's who I, that's what I is. I is the one that coalesced into I. (laughs) The true nature of the I is the one intelligent infinity that coalesced into I. And he's saying, you know, don't worry about Dukkha. Worry about uh, the cause cause of Dukkha. The cause of Dukkha, like in Buddhism, is the ten fetters. But you can really say that the 1098 is the root of uh, Dukkha. Fetters 1098. Basic avidya, ignorance, Restlessness, which is really a metaphysical uh, quality of, of vibratory fields or energy fields in vibration. Actually, energy fields themselves. Restlessness is light, you know, actually. I mean, ninth fetter Buddhism, right before, only the Arhan breaks the ninth fetter. Only moving out of sixth density to seventh and eight breaks the ninth fetter. Eight, nine, and ten are broken only by moving out of sixth density. And only the Arhan has the four, is the fourth stage awakening in Buddhism. Even non-returner hasn't broken fetters nine, 8, 9, 10. And so non-returner akin to higher self, Arahan akin to higher self, leaving 6, going to 7, 8. No longer becoming light. We, Ra said we no longer seek light, we become light in 6th density. Leaving 6th density, Ra said they drop memory and identity. That's breaking fetters 8, 9, 10. Dropping memory and identity drops the end's perception of time and space. Thus, time and space are finished. Thus, there's no more perception or experience of time and space. One becomes the one that generated light that generates time and space and perception or limited perception. Perception itself is limited. Intelligent infinity has no perception. Intelligent infinity is intelligent and infinite. Infinite intelligence and awareness. Intelligent infinity is awareness that he's talking about. Unbound, liberated awareness. Now, (laughs) to the extent that you know that, then the moment of death indeed is a moment of high, high ecstasy. Um, His relative absence, meaning in your illusory relative perception experience of time, I'm going to be absent. But dropping that uh, limited perception, um, self, you know, illusory subjective experience, moving from the relative uh, self, separative self, sense of separative self, to the absolute transpersonal, transsubjective, non-subjective, universal, unbound. Um, non-localized, boundless awareness, absolute presence. That's what I is. I is absolute presence. 
and it manifests uh, in in dukkha, or dukkha is basically the same as absolute presence taking itself to be uh, relative, separative uh, subjectivity. If you take yourself to be a this and not a that, that's uh, dualistic relativism or the sense of I or me or this and that. Dualism, dualistic perception or perception of dualism of subject-object, identity, time and space, uh, is, is I and this, this and that. This and that is relativity. It's relative. It's relational. Transrelationality is absolute presence. Absolute presence is beyond relational perception, perception of relation, of self and other, or me and my mind, or mind, body, and spirit. Duality, differentiation, the 10,000 things, the many vibratory forms of light uh, are no longer perceived, but the one light, and then the source of the one light, um, and the I, if there's any I to it, it's really beyond any I, because it's just sat-chit, tat-sat-chit, the chit awareness of tat-sat, suchness reality, not relative, it's absolute, and it's boundless presence. That's where we're going. Uh, Yeah, so his relative absence in the illusory uh, realm or the bi-illusory perception or empty perception of empty uh, time and space and time where the body's gone, past, present, future, that relative passing away absence will be for him (laughs) manifestation or liberation into absolute presence. Akin to, similar to Nityananda say, more can be done in the subtle than the gross. So, interestingly, he didn't talk about cosmology. And this and Gautama didn't either. And Nityananda didn't too much either. Although, maybe a little bit more because he talked about pranava, the manifestation of light, or prana from the one. Um, because he's really saying the source of dukkha is... Um, uh, lack of self-realization is um, uh, continued entrapment by ahamkara in ahamkaram in the karm, the made false, relative separative sense of self identity breaking that one goes to absolute presence and there's no dukkha there and then in the last paragraph um it's a it's two-edged sword to me. And on the one hand, when he, he I I know where he's coming from, but there's another side. Meaning they they're want you know they don't want him to leave. <laughs> Not just the beady smokers, but everybody doesn't want him to leave. Everybody's emotional. He they love him. You love your teacher. That's right. <laughs> you feel love, so you feel some grief that your teacher departs. But. Uh, he admonishes, saying, you've been coming here of your own volition to see another individual, I think there should be a comma there, a guru, meaning you're coming to see another of what you are. And, yeah, you call me a guru, then you expect me to give you liberation from bondage. Don't you see how ridiculous all this is? Your coming here day after day only shows that you're not prepared to accept my word that there's no such thing as an individual. So, to see another individual that you call a guru who, like yourself, <laughs> is not an individual. But you don't know that because uh, you want an individual or you haven't really understood his words, my words, he might say, that there's no such thing, meaning that, that the experience of relative personhood, separative selfhood, is an illusion. It's maya. It's avidya. It's ignorance. It's not real. It's experientially real and absolutely empty. Experientially real, temporarily real, apparently real, based on perception and uh, you know limited consciousness, really consciousness, vijnana, not chit. You know, subjectivist vijnana, not absolute chit. Mm. Based on that, then you think I'm some guy uh, who can give you something. Now, not everybody comes there with that view that the guru gives liberation from bondage. Some people do know that only I liberates I. But, and therefore it's not ridiculous, actually, that people come. You know, I I would love to be with a being who's uh, free of illusion, who's finished with the octave, 
I would want to go every day or, or live there or be his attendant. So uh, that doesn't mean I know that he can give me something. But yeah, you know, you want to stand under the sun because it's different than standing, you know, in a hole. You stand near the sun because the sun radiates uh, love light um, gloriously. You don't want to stand in a hole, you know, in the muck. It's a little bit different. But I know the sun doesn't liberate, but the sun radiates and it's so lovely and beautiful and glorious. Why would you not want to be there? So he says it's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous for those who are there expecting him or hoping he'll give them liberation. And in India and in the West, and a lot of people go to gurus thinking that. That's a problem, yes. Thinking the guru liberates. I expect you will, I will give you, the guru will, who you expect will give you liberation from bondage, moksha. Moksha out of dukkha. Nope, can't be done. Meanwhile, what he's really saying, you know, I can say, well, only self, only I liberates self. Actually, he's saying there is no I to liberate. There is no real substantial selfhood to be liberated. Right. There's never been bondage. There's never been liberation. Or there's no liberation possible because there's no bondage now. But we feel experientially dukkha, no doubt. So don't play games. We do feel dukkha. To say it's unreal is metaphysically true. But experientially, we feel a lot of dukkha and bondage, of course. But while the first, you know, the the common view is, I go to the guru, he'll free me. The next view is, I go to the guru because he's so beautiful (laughs) and he's lovely and I want to be with such a beautiful son. S-U-N or S-O-N with a capital S. Meanwhile, one may still, um, knowing the guru doesn't liberate, believe there's a self to be liberated. And he's saying there isn't any individual. Absolute presence is the true I, and it is not identity. So there's no, the true nature of identity is not identity. (laughs) The true nature of the self, or the true, the nature of the self is the origin or source, and its true nature is absolute presence, of course. It's boundless awareness, intelligent infinity, infinite awareness, which is naturally satchit, or the ananda, bliss of satchit, or tat satchit, of course. Okay, so, but, and, and so it's true. <clears throat> Some people go to the guru and harden the belief in a self that will be liberated by a guru. Other people go to the guru not with a hardened belief that the guru will liberate but they value the presence of the guru, but they still have a, a somewhat hardened or not yet broken uh, <clears throat> belief in substantial identity. Actually, that, that needs to be broken too. Just like the yani no, experiencing his own death, experiencing the death of the non-dual identity, experiencing the death of non-dual identity. Hmm. So then he said, well, <laughs> you, didn't prepare, you didn't accept my word. There's no such thing as an individual. And he's really saying, you know, when you get it, you won't be here. Coming back to me day after day. When you get it, you'll be free and easy, right? Leap into the boundless and make it your home, which means you can go wherever you want. But you still, one might still want to be near him. He then added, whatever I say is tape recorded. Other people take notes. Why, why, why? Some people come to wanting knowledge. What's the knowledge you want? Knowledge about which you take down notes. What are you going to do with it? Well, Maurice Friedman took a lot of notes or translated and then wrote or compiled Tatmamasi, the book. Well, a lot of notes went to that, and uh, that book has a lot of knowledge. And that knowledge is tremendously valuable to hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, is that a problem? I don't think so. I don't, uh, I don't think he really believes that it's a problem now either, frankly. But, but don't be, don't, you know, the point of talking is to get significant, is to, get, is to gain understanding. The point of, of using words is to convey significance and meaning. Uh, get the meaning, you don't need the words. Get the, the gnosis, the realization, you don't need the knowledge. So the purpose of knowledge 
other than making things easier or being able to you know figure out <laughs> practical matters is wisdom and the purpose of wisdom is ultimately going to be fulfillment of purpose and ultimately for purpose like Ross said the original desires that entities seek and become one actually <laughs> it's entities seek and return to source becoming one is not the end of the line and so <clears throat> you know Ra's in sixth density and a great you know, uh, an avadut is not. They're innate. They're finished with six. They're finished with identity. Rod is not yet. So that's the difference between sixth density, yana, and eighth density, paramatman, seems to me. So meanwhile, we hear the yak, yak, yak going on outside. It's not quite Bombay. Hopefully it won't get there. But <clears throat> it is noisy, pretend occasionally. So he was just giving out capsules of knowledge. He definitely didn't want anybody to be attached to knowledge and his words. And and that's the finger and the moon. The finger is the knowledge. The moon is realization and transformation of what I is. Transformation of awareness. Liberation. Liberation of consciousness into boundless awareness. Absolute presence. Beyond identity. And that's beyond Dukkha. So free of illusory identity equals liberation from bondage and freedom from Dukkha. So the next section, the last moments. At 10 a.m. on the 8th of September, 1981, just about 40 years, 40 years and a month from today or so, in the past, so-called, the day Maharaj attained Mahasamadhi, Great Samadhi, he appeared to be considerably better than he was the previous day. One could see that his face had better color and his eyes were bright with the usual radiance. The doctors observed that his chest was heavily congested and that the administration of oxygen was necessary. The doctor quickly arranged for an oxygen cylinder. Sri Mularpatan and Sri Balsakar were by his bed, along with his relatives. They also left a little later. Then Maharaj had a cup of milk and a little later a cup of tea and was feeling more comfortable. They both left Maharaj, hoping to come again in the afternoon, as usual. Sri Mularapatan came back in the afternoon and found Maharaj's condition had deteriorated and gave room for anxiety. He immediately phoned up Sri Balsakar, who rushed to Maharaj's residence. They found that oxygen was being administered, and Maharaj's eyes were open, but with a blank expression, which indicated that he was in the no-mind state. No mind state uh, beyond Vijnana. <laughs> his breathing was labored, and it seemed to the people around that his end could come at any time. Those moments when the disciples and the family members watched Maharaj breathing very heavily were the saddest moments in their lives. The end came at 7.32 p.m., and Maharaj made the transition from the relative to the absolute with the greatest ease and peace. The funeral was arranged to take place the next day. The next day, the 9th of September, 1981, Maharaj's body was placed in a reclining position, taken to the Ganga cremation ground. I think it's near the Ganga, Ganges River. The Ganga cremation ground in a procession which comprised several thousand people. When the body reached the cremation ground at 2.45 p.m., the crowd had swelled. The funeral pyre was lit by Maharaja's son at the end of a simple but moving ceremony, which started with the usual bhajans, uh, songs, chants, before Maharaja's guru's shrine, which was nearby. The flames consumed the body of Maharaj, and the physical frame of Maharaj got merged in the elements of which it was made. And that was that. So great, great being uh, goes, and um, that's it. And, you know, it is useful to have his, have the tape recordings and the teachings. That's why I can do this now, and you can listen to this now, and we can all benefit. So, he was a kind of a hard fellow, but uh, knowing that um, the guru doesn't confer complete and perfect enlightenment is very important. The Buddhists don't have a problem with that, except for some Tibetan Buddhist students and some Chinese, you know, some Mahayanists and some 
Vajrayana students seem to think that the guru can do it and you need a guru and you must. Actually, no, <laughs> I don't think that's the case whatsoever. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's one's own seven chakra awareness, consciousness system that is transformed. And it's our rightful obligation, responsibility to do it. And no one else can do it for us, obviously. Meanwhile, uh, so while the guru doesn't bring and make liberation, uh, their words, their presence is really quite wonderful for one who knows that um, it's on my plate to finish uh, the great work, not on his plate. It's my work, not his. So, and that was it. And he um, left very peacefully. And, um, you know, by the blessing, by his blessing, and then by the efforts, the great effort of Maurice Friedman and others, we have the book Tatvamasi. And by the work, the great work here of G.K. Damodaro Rao, we have this biography, and we have now 200 quotations, 200 um, sutras, or shloka, we can say, of wisdom of his um, Brahma Prajna. There's actually a term, we'll come to that. The Prajna of reality, the wisdom, truth. And so, let's see what the time is. 36.36. All right. So, the last of the 200 I read last time, I believe was 70. Um, Nicely, we can back up again. Um, not too far. Sixty-seven, and I'll try to restrain myself and move to the new material starting at seventy. Sixty-seven, Nisargadatta said, "Outside the self, capital S, outside the self, there is nothing. All is one, and all is contained in I am." Aham. In the waking and dream states, it is the person. In deep sleep and turiya, meaning uh, dreamless sleep, it is the self, capital S. Beyond the alert intentness of turiya, meaning dreamless sleep, lies the great silent peace of the Supreme. But in fact, all is one in essence and related in appearance. In ignorance, avidya, the seer becomes the seen. And in wisdom, he is the seeing. Know the knower, and all will be known. Beautiful. So in avidya, under the sway of avidya, and particularly, you know, 10th fetter, avidya, and then particularly 9-8, getting restlessness or agitation, the agitation of light and energy fields themselves, generating a coalescence into conceit or 8th fetter subjectivity, the ahamkaram, the making of the aham. Rather, you know, it's the coalescence of absolute I or absolute presence. You know, at, at that point, there's, there's no sense. Dropping identity drops I. And, you know, you can say I am, but we take it as I is or me. And that's mistaken. It's really um, this one here, as Nityananda said, uh, absolute presence or unbound awareness is this I am. And it's very non-personal. And so that transpersonality, impersonality, non-personality is a little hard to get for us, I think, for people also holding to this thought of I am. If you keep thinking I am, I am, you're just thinking. Uh, I is. And it isn't an I or a self at all. And so, and you can't think enlightenment. You can only think view and conception. That's fine. It's helpful. But thinking um, realization is not realization. It's the finger pointing to the moon, not the moon. It's a finger pointing to the moon. Good. Point your finger to the moon. But understand, there's a moon, there's a finger. And the thought and the teaching and the right view is a finger. And the moon is realization or you know, transubstantiation, transformation, transformation of what I is, or the manifestation of 
the consciousness energy fields in the octave that we call a self. So, um, in ignorance under a vidya, with the coales the restlessness based coalescence of um, satchit into vijnana and conceit and tanamanas and this conceived craved separative identity, then we have a seer. And that seer identifies with the scene. So the seer becomes the scene. I am angry. You know, the, the, their whole schema of seer and scene is established. The, the, their you know, reality is, is separate from the whole schema of an establishment of a subjective, a, a presumed subjective, a presumed subjectivity, which is separative identity. A aham karmed, a karmed, a karma made, a fashioned by samskara, a coalesced, fashioned identity, and therefore a uh, realm of perception of apparent externals. Then, before we even know what's going on, we commonly will then identify with the scene and say, I am angry. So there's me and the mind and my anger. It's all these different things and things. And that's all under avidya. But in wisdom or realization, the seer is the seeing. Uh, meaning um, subjectivity and personalism um, becomes one with process. And so that's why... Um, <laughs> The Pleiadians, talking to Billy Meyer, don't use the term the creator. They actually identify the creator as the creation. You can say that the creation is the body of the creator, meaning there's a being that made this creation. You can also say that this creation um, is the form of the creator or is the creator. Therefore, they say the creator as the creation. The creation made the creation. <laughs> now, you know, again, we can easily distinguish this is the body of the creator and <clears throat> meaning let there be light is the generation of uh, omnipresence, third aspect. And that omnipresent light, uh, energy, consciousness of 31 planes, seven rays, seven dimensions, octaves and all that is the body of a creator Actually, the creator or the source doesn't even make that distinction. But um, knowing that the nature of any fashioned identity is absolute presence, which is a really lovely way of putting it, I think, because that's what I've experienced this in meditation, where any thought of I falls away to a sense of emerging presence meaning presence, on, on non, non-personal presence emerges. I've experienced this emergence of non-personal presence. That is the true one that has then coalesced into a sense of Scott or I. In wisdom, he's the seeing. Uh, action or activity or all that, that appears to be um, in life, of life, um, is is the one that is uh, seeing. <clears throat> so the scene becomes the seer, or the seer doesn't distinct is no longer experiencing separation from the scene. So then you can't even say seer and scene. So you say seeing, right? The distinction of subject object falls away when the um, belief in or experience of perception of a subjective seer ends. When subjectivity ends, dual subject-object schema reality, so-called reality, the whole realm of subject-object ends. Then we can say they're seeing. At a higher level, or you know, with full merger in absolute presence, there's no distinction even into the, the term seeing. There's seeing, knowing, being. Seeing, knowing, being is all one. That, that absolute presence does uh, seeing, knowing, being all together. 
and doesn't distinguish or wouldn't have extinguish, distinguishing um, perception and knowing and presence or being, you know, presence in the sense of physical, uh, substantial um, location or a formal distinction. So in wisdom, the one freed of identity is also freed of identification with uh, objects, doesn't perceive objects, and also doesn't perceive a selfhood separate from objects. So know the knower means know what I is, and all will be known. 68. Unmanifested. Manifested. Individuality. Personality. Nirguna, saguna, vyakta, vyakti. All these are mere words, points of view, mental attitudes. There is no reality in them. The real, otherwise called sat, is experienced in silence. You are conscious of being a person only when you are in trouble. When you're not in trouble, you don't think of yourself. Hmm. That's true. <laughs> when, when the mind is in vast peace, there's no turning back to create a hum. Hmm. And that's something I'm going to show, show you with the etymology of autonomy. In 69, non-distinction speaks in silence. Words carry distinctions. The unmanifest nirguna, not guna, has no name. All names refer to the manifested, saguna. So the idea is that nirguna, no name, formless or unmanifested, is a name we're giving to the opposite of what we're normally naming. And therefore it's also equally empty. So object is as e- is equally empty as subject. That's the point. Transsubjectivity, dropping subjectivity, drops the experience of objectivity or objects and forms outside too. Drops disti- di- differentiation. And he said, it's useless to struggle with words to express what's beyond words. Consciousness, chittananda, <laughs> where previously that could be translated as awareness of reality or unbound awareness or um, on reality awareness or being awareness chit ananda chit is chit awareness or is chit being well it's the same it's unbound awareness the beingness of unbound awareness which is really not a separative beingness either sat chit or chit ananda is spirit purush the true being is chit is chit ananda is is sat chit actually Consciousness, Chittananda, so that's terrible because Chittananda is not consciousness. Chittananda is awareness bliss or beingness bliss. So what about, you see, somebody didn't translate well here. Clearly, Chittananda is Chit and Ananda. Ananda is bliss. Chit is what? Again, awareness or sometimes would be translated consciousness or sentience um, or being. But it's not just that. There's a, it's not just translated consciousness. It should be bliss of consciousness, bliss of awareness, bliss of um, sentience. So awareness bliss, chittananda, reality bliss, chittananda, is spirit purush, meaning the beingness. Consciousness in matter, prakriti. Imperfect spirit is matter. Perfect matter is spirit. In the beginning, as in the end, all is one. 70. Reality is neither, this is the new, reality, which again could be called sat, reality is neither subjective nor objective, neither mind nor matter, neither time nor space. These divisions need somebody to whom to, whom to happen, a conscious separate center, the presumption of one. Reality is all and nothing, the totality and the exclusion, the fullness and the emptiness Fully consistent, absolutely paradoxical. You cannot speak about it. You can only lose yourself in it. When you deny reality to anything, you come to a residue which cannot be denied. (laughs) It's very profound as he is. So, reality, tatsat, doesn't... uh, is not of a dualism of a subject and an object, nor of a dualism of mind or matter, meaning consciousness, awareness, and so-called external forms or matter, 
neither time nor space, right? So there's no uh, apparently linear or experientially linear, linear sequence of experience, of phenomena in time, nor apparently distinct topography of space, meaning place. All those divisions, distinctions need someone to whom to happen <laughs> are based on ignorance, obviously, 10th, 9th, 8th fetter. A tanamanas, a conceived, coalesced, uh, apparently separative subjectivity. Reality is all and nothing, the totality and the exclusion, like the void. The fullness and emptiness, fully consistent, absolutely paradoxical. Ooh, it's not really paradoxical, it's just beyond description. You can't speak about it, you can only lose yourself in it, jump, leap into the boundless and make it your home, as Chuang Tzu said. When you deny reality to anything, uh, you come to a residue which can't be denied. He's really saying, if you go neti neti, and you say all these words are empty, you know, neither affirmation nor negation, madhyamaka, the garjana rules, the garjana rules. Uh, affirmation is empty, negation is empty, if you go neti neti and say, no, 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 not this, not that, uh, eventually you come to a residue which can't be denied. You know, um, freedom from affirmation, negation, the truth or satchit, which is beyond affirmation, negation, which is, you know, sunya <laughs> or nibban or parbrahman or satchit, tat satchit. Uh, that can't be negated or affirmed. It's not a thing to be affirmed, nor is anything excluded or excludable. There's no things to be excluded or rejected. So it just means, you know, don't worry about it. You'll get there. When you get there, you'll know. 71. It is a matter of actual experience that the self, capital S, the self has being independent of mind and body. It is being awareness bliss, otherwise called what? Purush Sat Ananda? Well, that could be Satchit Ananda, being awareness bliss, because that's sometimes translated that way. Awareness of being is bliss. Nityananda said the same kind of thing, where at least he said something like Satchit is Ananda. Satchit, the chit of Sat, the awareness of Sat, which could be, again, reality, absolute truth, or being. Uh, is ananda, is bliss, it's blissful. So, you know, the creator is so blissful, and that's really the way it is with higher dimensional, greater beings. Uh, one of the reasons <laughs> we feel bereft down here is that um, beings in Satchitananda, or relative levels of that, like uh, Atman, who's not fully finished with identity, but is in a pretty... Um, blissful condition in sixth density becoming light or knowing I is one light all this light one I is the I um, they sort of have the sense well this is not our problem this is on your plate not ours and they're right we chose to be here and they didn't choose to incarnate they may love and feel grief and do send love light and intervene or help or do all sorts of things but in the end they'll know they know it's on our plate not on theirs. And so, you know, the problem with the world in many ways for us is that we're here. <laughs> if you're not here, you may think, well, well, you know, let them have their thing. And that's the way we were before, and that's probably the way we'll be after. Mm. You know, it's not my problem. It's not on my plate before incarnation and after the cycle of incarnations. Uh, but we're here now, so it is on our plate somewhat. But the higher beings that are very much in... Uh, Satchit Ananda, uh, relatively or absolutely, um, don't, they just, um, they're too far away. <laughs> and they've got something uh, glorious. And so, and that can't be transferred. Anyway, 72. I appear to see and hear as you do. But to me, it just happens to you as digestion and perspiration happen. Or as to you, or as to you, your digestion and perspiration happens. The body-mind machine looks after it, but leaves me out of it. Just as you do not need to worry about growing hair, so I don't need to worry about works and actions. They just happen and leave me unconcerned, for in my world, nothing ever goes wrong. So no more right and wrong. 
this is a pure Wu Wei, right? Pure Wu Wei, non-action, which is really non-interference, non-interruption. Just like the Ra said, the is is just like Ra said, the crystallized healer has no will. It's just like that. Now he's above a crystallized healer, presumably, uh, but a crystallized healer like Atman would have a similar perspective where living in spirit, body mind go becomes autonomous or or the auto, like autonomic nervous system is the nervous system that's not under conscious mind control normally or in general not under conscious mind control or requiring conscious mind management the autonomous nervous system autonomic nervous system comes out of the word autonomous autonomous uh, for him not only the body's functions uh, are sort of in the autonomic, but the mind is also in the autonomic. The body, mind, and his physical interaction, interplay is in the autonomic, meaning it goes by itself, meaning no need for self-willing to even choose. It all happens naturally, and that's like Gautama saying, uh, saying, you know, God does it all. It's all done by God. And he says the same kind of thing. All these gurus will say it's all done by God, actually. Because they free, they're free from way. They're in the Wu way. They're they're not way. They're not weighing. They're not coalesced into a dualism. They're free of the coalescence of awareness into dualistic sense of right and wrong, or should or shouldn't, or wet, whether I should or shouldn't, or what's right and what's wrong, or how about this and how about that. They're not living with options. Free will as an illusion. Um, let thy, thy will be done, or the one thou of creational flow, they're assistant, they're, you know, they are supportive of it, uh, and they're no longer, it's no longer possible for them to be interruptive to thou, to the way, to uh, the creational phenomenal display uh, occurring naturally, and that's another aspect of Nisar, Nisarga. Nisarga is natural or nature. Uh, he, free of illusion, we are free from um, interrupting. And this is just like Chuang Tzu saying, knowing what heaven does, he lives with heaven. Knowing what man does, he makes sure that what he knows, what he doesn't know, doesn't interfere with what he does know. Or that what he that his knowledge of man doesn't interrupt his way of being with heaven. <laughs> that that the, there's no... He's not interrupting what shouldn't be interrupted. And so he doesn't worry... Nisargadat doesn't worry about works and actions. They just happen to leave him unconcerned. The body-mind machine, not just the body machine with autonomic nervous system, etc., but the body-mind is seen that way. That's very interesting. And that's really above the monastic, or monastic happens naturally, it's uh, autonomic. The mind that we normally think is I, um, he sees now as, as part of nature, like the body's part of nature. And there's the autonomous, uh, autonomic process. And let me um, just briefly actually go to um, etymology. So... Let's see the time. Oh, close to the end. Just a few we read here. So where he's saying body-mind machine looks after it, and for him now body-mind um, is not interfered because they've both become autonomic. As for most folks, body itself, body only is autonomic or has an automatic, autonomic, self-managing um, capacity, the, the self-regulating capacity of the autonomic nervous system that doesn't require conscious in- intervention or control or management, for him now applies also to mind. That is the concept of uh, autonomy or autonomic as autonomy as the basis for an autonomic. And 
I did some look into the etymology of the term autonomy, and it's actually very interesting, because this is the understanding uh, for him where <laughs> body and mind are have there's no he has no need to control mind um, because it goes as autonomously as body. The body, you know, when you're hungry, you eat; when you're tired, you sleep. Hmm? Same thing the Zen and Chan teachers understood. The autonomy, um, self-regulating power, which is God's will or prana, of body, means we sh- we should know the body and don't interrupt and don't interfere. That can be applied to mind too, and it's the principle of autonomy. So what we think we must control and manage some some things don't need to be controlled and managed at all, including mind, including works and actions. He said for himself, meaning inter interaction, interrelation, you know, relationship and uh, interplay, engagement with others, other selves. Right. So when you look at the word autonomy, the principle of actually Tao as applied to body self-regulating and even mind self-regulating, if we would get out of the way, when he's gotten out of the way, when one. When the I, uh, when one finishes, or the more one finishes with ahamkara, or the fat, the continual fashioning of false selfhood, or the ego, right, the third chakra blockage, <laughs> Raset, of egohood, the more we get out of the way, the more one can experience the autonomy of mind, akin to the autonomy of body. Autonomy from ancient Greek dictionary page autonomia. Freedom to use its own laws, independence. So the independence and freedom of body and mind to go there to be in harmony, their own natural nisarga way, being their autonomy, comes from autonomous living under one's own laws, independent. Mm. That uh, is uh, autonomous ya, which means a suffix. And then the final line on the etymology says, uh, surface analysis, ho-ho, is auto-nomi, right? Auto-self-nomi, a system of rules or laws about a particular field. Okay. But let's look at auto. And what we find is a Greek word, uh, auto, which comes from otos, or self. And when we look at otos, or self, uh, from the ancient Greek, what we find is an interesting sentence. What I found is an interesting sentence. Uh, Mr. Rish, R-I-S-C-H, probably a classical Greek scholar of ancient Greek etymology, right? You know you're hardcore when you're doing the etymology of, <laughs> of etymological roots, the etymology of ancient Greek. So he derived the uh, not-too-ancient Greek autonomy, from autos and nomi, but he's actually deriving autos. What do you do with autos? Derive that from the even older ancient Greek counterparts of the words o and ton, oton. What is that? O, au, au. Sounds a little bit like om, right? Au, ton, auton, right? Auto. The way you, you, he translated au, and ton, au is back again other, and ton is the. So the auto, the autos, the sense, the self, what we call a self, is associated with the or a back again other. The other that's established by going back again. The backing, the again backing, backing again or backing up again, or backing again, again backing otherhood, otherness. And so self is um, sort of a turning back, the turning back. The self, the otos, is the process of light turning back upon itself and establishing the idea or a sense of identity. Self as identity, selfhood, comes out of a turning back again process, a back again process, which establishes otherness. The self is other 
to the logos, right? Logos and self. Right? No, <laughs> the logos is the logos. All is the logos. All is the all the light. All the light of the logos is the logos. All the creation of God is the creator. The creation is the creator. And there's no other other than the I or the one that then turned back again, that repeatedly goes back, repeatedly turns back again, again and again turns back, and establishes the other of subject-object. While before there was no subject-object. Before the (laughs) subject-object, before there was subject-object, there's subject. Before there was subject there's no turning back. So self is a turning back. Self, the sense of self or identity is established by, I would say, natural sentient light sent, turning back upon itself and establishing subjectivity. Hmm. And when you don't turn back, you just go forward. Um, then you have absolute presence without a, an other, a, a, a mentally established or reflecting a a turning back again other establishing selfhood (laughs) self as other as self or identity is establishes an other to the one infinite creator or to absolute presence infinite awareness infinite awareness is and when in the forms of light it turns back repeatedly upon itself it establishes subjectivity and autos, say I. So how's that for brain chakra, brain nadi activity? So if you want to stimulate your six and seven chakras nadis, this may be useful. And that'll be it for today. The next time, pick up at um, 73. And he's explaining how his experience of the phenomenal world, how it's distinct from ours. So again, 73 is where we'll pick up next time. I hope it was useful. I hope you're well. Please take good care of yourself. See you next time. And good night.